The Reimagining Development podcast was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people, or part of coastal Sydney, and the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people of Canberra, and a number of others across this country. We give our thanks and pay our respects to all Indigenous people. Sovereignty was never ceded. Well, hello and welcome to Reimagining Development, conversations on the new development policy. This series is brought to you by Goodwill Hunters in a very special collaboration with the Australian Council for International Development, or ACFID. As the name spells out, this breakout series is all about the new development policy. We want to inject new ideas, fresh voices, innovative thinking into the design of the new policy. I'm Rachel Mason-Nunn, the founder of Goodwill Hunters. And I'm Jess McKenzie, the Chief Policy Officer with ACVID. We've spent the past couple of months deep in thought and in conversation about how this new development policy should look. And the aim of this podcast is to bring those conversations to you. We're casting a wide lens on the aid, development and humanitarian sector. I will flag we may not use all the right terms all at once. Sometimes people refer to things as a policy, sometimes as a process. Bear with us, it's in the spirit of sharing. This series will bring together established thought leaders, emerging thought leaders, exciting new voices and perspectives. We hope you find them as inspiring and thought-provoking as we do. But to begin with, let's look inwards. Jess, I know ACFID has just made their submission to the new international development policy like so many others in our sector. Can you tell us a bit about it? Oh, wow. It was 33 pages, Rachel. <laughs> I'm exhausted. So's the team. Uh, look, we, we were reflecting on the fact that the last 10 years of the um, development program has been really curtailed. There's been enormous cuts that everyone's pretty familiar with. And there's been this sort of stripping away of everything but the bare bones through, um, not through the fault of the department in any way, just sheer budget requirements. And so we were thinking, what do we want it to look like in the next 10 years? How do we rebuild this? We're not talking about what happens in the next year or so, not 12 or 18 months. We were taking a 10-year lens, which I think fits with the ambition of what you're hearing from different ministers as well in these global forums when they talk about this. So, yeah, we uh, wrote out the building blocks as we saw them and uh, hence the 33 pages plus an annex. And the main, the main asks were things like, you know, climate and how do we address that and it's integral to the development program health we felt that the covid response had been really robust but everything else around health systems had been sort of stripped away and humanitarian if we look at the spike in needs globally we're just not equipped to deal with that so the submission went through three areas that sort of opened up with why why we have a development program and you know the objectives of that bringing it back to poverty alleviation and development outcomes it looked at what we thought should be done differently as we of slowly readjust over a 10-year period and then how that should be delivered. So yeah, we're exhausted now. Yes, it must be exhausted and what a comprehensive submission. I think there were a lot of sneaky annexes across the sector. I feel sorry for the DFAT team that has to read them all. <laughs> Don't we all? Amazing. And another organisation that's just made a submission is Oak Tree and today we're thrilled to be joined by the fabulous CEO of Oak Tree, Thenu Hara. Benny, thank you so much for being here with us. Oak Tree is, of course, a youth-focused NGO with programs in Cambodia and Timor-Leste. Penny, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me today, Rachel and Jess. This is the first time I've been through a submission process like this, and I 
think that speaks true to a lot of people at Oak Tree since we are all young people. Um, so I'm, I think, the oldest person at Oak Tree at the moment and I've just turned 25. So we're all sort of figuring out how things work as we go and um, we've really enjoyed this process. A little bit about me in particular, I grew up in Adelaide and I come from a Sri Lankan family. So I've always really been aware of the inequalities that exist in our world um, and the fight for global justice has been a deeply personal one for me. And working at Oak Tree has been the most incredible experience to work with some awesome, really talented young people, not only here in Australia, but across the Asia Pacific. And I'm really proud that this year we've expanded our programs, not only in Cambodia and Timor-Leste, but to Indonesia and Tonga as well. So that was a really exciting initiative. Fantastic. So, Fenu, full disclosure, for this podcast, we wanted to recreate the idea of an offline and very frank discussion. So the chat you have after the official meeting, basically, you know, when you go for coffee or at the water cooler. So for the case of you and I, the last time we met was when we shared a fungi pizza to Blind Mice in Curtain, which is uh, ACFID's home away from home and very recommended, by the way, to those listening. And we chatted about a lot of things, but I forgot to take notes. So I'm hoping to do it all again now. Oh, sounds great. Do I get a pizza delivered here, Jess, as part of Uh, that? uh, Yes. Um, So, Thanu, look, let's just dive straight in. Why should we care about young people? Why are young people different from just people? What's wrong with the one-size-fits-all approach to policy? Or are you guys a special species? Mm, Such a good question. I think this is actually a really important question to start with because unlike gender, disability and other forms of marginalisation, youth is a little bit special in the sense that everyone has been young and everyone will continue to grow older. And so it is really important that we focus in on this why. Why do we focus on young people as a specific and distinct group in a policy like this, but in broader government decision-making? And for me, it's really that we currently me, but I, I'm I'm slowly transitioning out of this demographic, but young people, we really do bring a different perspective because of the way that we have grown up. A lot of people under the age of 25 currently have never experienced a world without the digital nature of, of our lives at the moment. They have grown up in an increasingly volatile period and they have distinctly different experiences from those that have come before. One thing that I found really surprising actually was that 60% of the world's youth in particular live in the Asia Pacific region. So when we think about that 60%, more than half of the population of young people in the entire world live in our region. So for me, it is absolutely crazy for us to not think of this demographic in all the work that we do, but specifically the opportunities that this demographic can bring as a result. Mm. That youth bulge is so interesting. And for full disclosure, I used to work at Oak Tree um, many years ago. And I remember, you know, way back then, what a fantastic champion oak tree was and and particularly in talking about the youth bulge because as you've said I don't think we realize just how large our youth population is in this part of the world um it's it's a really critical flag to be flying did it come through strongly in your submission I I assume it did but can you tell us a bit about what was in oak tree's submission Yeah, so because of this huge youth bulge that's happening in our region, uh, we really wanted to focus on why Australia should focus on young people, children and young people in our development policy. So unlike other governments, such as the US, we have not, as far as I'm aware, previously focused on youth as a key aspect of our development policy. And as I said, with 60% of the population in the region that we are focusing on being young people, we think there are clear opportunities for 
DFAT and the government to really take hold of young people and their abilities and talents. So for us, we understand that there are a lot of priorities in this policy, but we think that young people should be a cross-cutting feature across all of them. We need to adopt an intersectional lens to gender to look at what it actually means for young people, females that are um, growing up in these communities and similarly disability and young people and climate change and young people, health and young people, a really intersectional approach to all of this. So that was our really first core ask of DFAT. And then we also really wanted to invest in the entrepreneurialism that we're seeing in the region in young people. We just conducted a report, a 65-page long report um, of the effects of COVID-19 on young people in the region, as well as some of the opportunities that they've taken as a result of the changes that have happened in their communities. And and entrepreneurialism and investing in young people was one of the key findings that we had through that. That's great. And I really look forward to reading it. I just want to ask though, shouldn't a policy like entrepreneurial support be universal? What's different about making it available to young people specifically, as opposed to a broader entrepreneurial or private sector program? Such a great question, Jess. I think the data that we collected show that young people just really bring a different lens and different solutions as a result. I'll give you an example from the research that we've undertaken this year. So in Fiji, we interviewed a group of young people who had actually created a um, way in which which to live stream funerals during the COVID-19 pandemic, because that's something that they couldn't actually gather as they traditionally do in family cohorts um, at the time. So they found a way to live stream to all their relatives. Um, And that was a solution that we identified was uniquely only able to come into fruition because of the digital nativism that was present in these young people, right? It wasn't something that necessarily came out of older generations or from um, the government. So this is just one example that highlights that young people do really bring a different perspective and in investing in them, we can really get some cool and creative solutions. That's fascinating. Wow. So much great entrepreneurial ideas came through in the pandemic. It's, It's really amazing to hear case studies like that. And I guess when I hear you talk about it, it's clear that Oak Tree is really championing a very inclusive approach, championing the mainstreaming of youth in in all aspects of the policy and, and, and in all aspects of development, really. But there's always a risk you're going to leave someone out, right? Mm. Like even best intentions. What, what, are, what are the risks that you see and, and are there particular groups that you think are, are still um, at risk of being left out? Absolutely. I'm going to go back to that concept of intersectionality here. I think we need to look at ways in which not to, I think, um, reduce people's identity to, to different thematic focuses. And people are going to get left behind if we're just focusing on gender or just focusing on youth or just focusing on disability. We need a way in our policy making to bring all those factors together. And that's the only real way that I see that we don't leave particular disadvantaged communities behind. Mm, that's something we were grappling with in our submission too, making sure that that intersectionality gets adopted because it's something that we weren't always very good at in the past. And then with this stripping away of the budget, it's one of the first things to go is the space to take a kind of holistic lens to these things. Absolutely. And I think as humans, generally, we love putting people into different buckets and nicely having thematic areas that we can go to. But I'd really be interested in hearing your perspectives, Jess and Rachel, from from being in this sector a little longer than I have. What do you think have been the key barriers to adopting some of some of this intersectional thinking? 
Rachel, I'm going to give you first right of reply and then I'm going to jump in. <laughs> yeah, it's it's actually a really hard one. And and I think I think we may have reached a place where a lot of people feel like they're walking on eggshells sometimes with these topics. I think maybe it's partly because of the jargon, like there's a lot of words. And for people that have been in the sector longer, perhaps um, it, it can feel a bit foreign and a bit daunting, which doesn't mean we should do nothing. But I fear that sometimes it's a bit paralyzing. And I know at the um, Australasian Aid Conference this year, the winner of that um, is it the three minute aid pitch was someone who <laughs> pitched um, like an AI that could write development language. And I thought it was really telling because it it really evidenced the fact that like we we do we we use a lot of words, and 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 I I think that that actually can undermine inclusion. And so for me, it's a question of how are we bringing everyone into the tent to feel comfortable and safe talking about this, to feel comfortable piloting new approaches to maximize inclusion and to, to, to integrate intersectionality considerations into their work. Like how do we make that process inclusive? I guess that's one thing that comes to mind for me. But, but Jess, what's your experience? I think that AI program was called Talk Defat to Me, by the way, which I just thought was fantastic. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> it should have been called Talk Development to Me, frankly, because it's true of the entire sector, the whole ecosystem. Um, we were talking about it at our Christmas party. I, yeah, look, a couple of things spring to mind. It's so hard, right? So we were doing our submission and we got to a point where almost every section was referencing every other section in terms of intersectionality, which is just ridiculous, right? So... Um, when you're talking to people who are outside the sector, it makes sense to explain, you know, there is a really close connection between things like climate and humanitarian. You know, humanitarian and climate issues have sort of lost their exceptionalism now. We're seeing them so frequently that if you're not taking into account the connection between those two things, then you're not programming appropriately, right? Um, but when you have people who are working in this space, people spend their whole careers in one dedicated stream specializing. And that's a really great thing, right? Like there is this technical depth to what they're doing, but you end up having these streams of people who are gender equality specialists or, you know, health specialists. And so that we're almost, you know, suffering from our own specialization where you're unable then to work across those different portfolios, which is what, you know, complex problems require. And I think when you compound that with the fact that so much of the, space for design or analysis has been um, stripped back. We're so busy these days and there's never any time and everything's due now that it's that thought process that gets lost. Yeah, I'd love to pick up a point you just mentioned there, Jess, about how fast things are moving, even this development policy, the fact that we had little over a month to prepare a submission, for example, and I know DFAT themselves are on a really tight schedule as well. Um, I wonder if the fast-paced nature of the work we are doing actually prevents some of this deep conceptual thinking that is perhaps needed to tackle some of the really tricky problems that we are facing. Um, and I know it's not just development that is facing this challenge. I, I think the world is moving really fast more and more. We want short snippets of the solution rather than detailed 65-page long <laughs> examples of what needs to happen. So I think that's also a really important thing for us to consider too. Yeah. Can I just build on that? There's also this feeling that People are so interested in understanding what works well because it's kind of a cheap pathway through to a solution as opposed to stopping and thinking from first principles what would be appropriate. And I don't think that one's necessarily better than the other. I think if you find something that works well, like that's great. We should build on that. But it means that we're going with existing models and we're not taking a chance to think how things can be done differently. And with your example, Fenner, of the 
the funerals being live streamed, like opportunities are there where new things are coming through if we give them the space. And I would add to that, maybe just to throw in a question for you, Thanu. I I remember when I was at the World Bank, which is about eight years ago now, I feel like our conversation on gender then is sort of where our conversation on youth often feels now. Mm. And there was a, a camp back then who was very much, we need to mainstream and integrate gender in everything we do and we shouldn't have standalone gender projects. Gender is something that has to be integrated across everything. And then there were others who were championing projects entirely focused on gender. Mm-hmm. And I wonder where where do you strike that balance? Like what's your position on that with youth and particularly when we're talking about about the need for, for an intersectional uh, approach? It's a really good question and I think there is a concern that when we start to mainstream all these different focuses that everything will get lost as a result. Um, but ultimately I think this plays true to to everything when it comes to diversity and inclusion. When we focus on just one aspect of identity across everything, then we are really leaving people behind and we don't come to those solutions that will benefit and bring up everybody in the process. So I am very optimistic that there is a way that we can put our brains together and come up with a process that those things do not get lost and that if we mainstream gender and if we mainstream youth and if we mainstream disability, um, that there is a way for us to really build those frameworks in so that nothing gets left behind and, in fact, they all come together to really create a more um, complex but workable solution. Jess? So I was having a really good conversation with someone from, he's an impact investment manager and he's Mm -hmm. largely working in the Canadian space. space. His name is Serge from Sorona. And he was saying that often when they're trying to get these large investments out the door, they'll do all their their safeguards work, they'll do all their design work. And then they end up, unfortunately, in Canada, sometimes being held hostage by these gatekeepers who might be the gender specialist or the water specialist or, you know, different inclusion assets that are really important. But because those people are outside the tent, they end up becoming blockers. And he was talking about the importance in program design of bringing those people into the tent so that it's on them to help develop the constructive pathway forward. Yeah, I I really agree with that. And I think in everything we do, we need to be pragmatic about how it happens in reality. We can talk about this and have a million podcasts on intersectionality, but if it doesn't actually happen in practice, then absolutely there's no point talking about it. And the, the the reality is just that young people have been outside that tent for, for a lot of history and currently now as well. Um, even as part of this DFAT consultation process, for example, um, as far as we know, young people in the region haven't been consulted um, and have not been brought into this ex- expert advisory group either. So um, I think that the first step is really to bring in experts in this space um, to call on the expertise that young people bring and help them build these policies and these intersectional lenses, because that's the only way that we can actually build that pragmatic approach. So with your submission, who it's so hard to understand who the voice is for young people, right? So you're working across an entire region and everyone's going to have different ideas if they're in the tent. So what kind of outreach did you do about gathering perspectives for your submission? So for our submission, we interviewed 22 youth organisations across Asia and the Pacific with a um, quite even split between the two regions. And really, we do identify that even this had some shortcomings. They were all youth organisations representing a particular kind of young person and a particular demographic of young people. So we really want to just acknowledge the limitations of the study that we did there as well. But what we were really aiming to do was to localise some of those learnings. We do understand 
for example, that um, young people in Sri Lanka will have a very different perspective from young people in Cambodia. And that's okay. Like they need to be situated in their local context. And the way we really approach getting young people's voices heard in this space is to elevate their voices within their communities, within their own local decision-making frameworks and their own governments, for example. But then similarly, when we come together and create a report like this together, and it really was a, a project together, we were just the facilitator of a cooperative that came together to create this report. Um, we really do think that there is a way for that collective voice to be heard in international programs such as the ones we're working on here. Mm. It is, it's so hard to be representative, isn't it, uh, in, a, in a submission, as you say, like you acknowledge there's shortfalls in every process. And I think through the pandemic, we've seen a lot of generalising about the impacts it had on young people. And on the one hand, we have to generalise because there's there's messages we need to get across, like this is a conversation we need to have, we need to generalise. But on the other hand, the experience of young people through the pandemic has been so varied, right? Mm. Even amongst community, even in households, let alone entire communities and countries and across the world. Um, so in saying all of that, I'm going to ask you, <laughs> what do you think have been the main impacts of the pandemic on young people, particularly in the Pacific? And what did you hear through those consultations? Yeah, it's it's really interesting you bring that up because we did find it really hard to draw out key themes for that very reason. Young people are so diverse. And even though we are looking at them as a specific group in this way, like you said, they definitely have those different intersectional identities that created a really different experience for different people. But really, we had five key themes that came out of our consultations. The first of which was one I've already mentioned, was that youth entrepreneurialism. There was a real idea that some of the problems that were um, present in local communities weren't able to be fixed by governments. So I think there was that lack of faith in authority um, because of some of the shortfalls that they had seen during the pandemic. So they turned to mechanisms outside of formal institutions and starting their own businesses and starting their own initiatives to tackle some of the issues that that they were facing. That was a key thing that we that we found. Secondly, um, we really found that there was a feeling that young people felt that they were left out of the disaster resilience and humanitarian preparedness processes as well. Um, I think a lot of communities relied on young people to um, to really facilitate health outcomes during the pandemic as well as some of the natural disasters we're seeing as a result of climate change and there needs to be a bigger strategy was the feeling that we really got. Um, thirdly, was about digital access, um, especially for disadvantaged demographics. In the pandemic, I mean, we're all on Zoom. We're all really relying on technology and digital access and, um, you know, quite personally for me, my my cousins in Sri Lanka who could not attend school and who also were facing power cuts had no way to access education for a really lengthy period of time during the last three years. And I think that shows the divide we have between um, not only countries, but even communities inequality that we see. And then the last thing that I will touch on is mental health. In this space in development, we often talk about health specifically as physical health, investing in the capability and infrastructure to ensure better health outcomes in that way. But in all the interviews we conducted across the Asia-Pacific, mental health was probably the biggest theme we came across. And young people want a greater investment in that space and identify it as probably one of the biggest problems that they they and their communities are facing. 
Couldn't agree more. And I've actually done a fair bit of work on mental health and development programming. And, you know, for every dollar that you spend on mental health, it returns about $4 to the economy. So if you think of it from a livelihood's point of view, like it just makes so much sense. Yeah. Um, Mental Health Innovation Network does a whole lot of really great work in this. I'm looking forward to, we need more pizza. Um, <laughs> I found that when we were doing our submission, Thanu and Rach, I'm not sure if you found this as well, but almost every area we spoke to, every sexual area wanted to have their own strategy or their own lens applied. And I sort of felt a little bit sorry for whoever's having to write this because they're going to essentially, like, this is the strategy. They don't need to have 12 parallel strategies necessarily underneath it, or maybe they do. And that's a tough question. So I think what's really important is what kind of policy asks would we want to be in that strategy and diving down to the next level? So that's why I find this so helpful, what you're saying now, Fenu. So entrepreneurialism, mental health, representation, digital access, and being seen as legitimate partners in preparedness for disasters. That's what I'm hearing from you. Not just a seat in the tent, though that, of course, is important too, and part of representation. Yeah, the seat at the tent is the starting point, right? So once we bring people into that space, you can start to really hone down on what needs to happen in each of these prior each of these priority areas that we've we've found, and really goes further than this as well. These were just the five main themes. Um, once we have people in that room identifying the problems, then we can also start to come up with the solutions. Yeah, that's what the strategy should be focused on. If you had priority areas. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about either um, preparedness for disasters and the role that young people have played in that or the mental health? I'd love to hear some more studies from the field. Yeah, absolutely. So I think what we found uh, was that young people are intrinsically aware of the world that they have inherited. They understand, for example, that the risks of climate change and other compounding crises like um, the pandemic. And a key statistic that I that I will highlight is that 90% of young people felt like their government had not adequately prepared for COVID-19 and that they did not provide enough support. That was through our research. So I think what this really highlights for me is that young people can be legitimate contributors to all stages of the disaster response, not just to um, the execution, but to the planning as well. And their expertise really presents what I think and what our team thinks is a crucial step towards that more inclusive and whole of society management of future climate, future health and technological crises too. Um, and then similarly for, for mental health support, 100% of our research participants experienced increased stress, fear, uncertainty and anxiety as a result of the pandemic. And, um, you know, in Australia, we struggle already with mental health services, but some of, some of the communities we were discussing this with experienced this to a much larger scale than we did here in Australia. Really, the accessibility and scale of mental health services needs to be drastically expanded across society to better support this emerging trend that we're seeing. And, and I suppose compounding with that is the continued impact of climate change, and which, which we've touched on there a little bit with disaster preparedness. But I imagine a lot of your conversations with young people, Thenu, are about climate change and their fears and concerns about it, right? So how did that compound with what you were hearing uh, in your consultations? Yeah, it's funny because we were focusing on COVID-19, the climate crisis was something that perhaps wasn't a major focus, but underlied a lot of the recommendations that came out of the report. I mean, ultimately, climate change and the climate crisis is going to affect every single one of these priorities. And it's really at the forefront of all, all um, the participants' minds, um, especially in these interviews. And 
um, there is just a real feeling uh, that, you know, we can invest in all of these things, but ultimately if we don't first really focus on the mitigation strategies needed to avert some of the, the bigger existential threats that we're facing, um, then these are almost Band-Aid solutions in a way. They're not going to last for, um, you know, the next 30, let alone 50 years. 50 years. And we know that climate change is really the burden of your generation, Benu. So what are the people in your network telling you about? I'm just trying to think of your work in Cambodia and Timor-Leste. What were they saying? What did they want done? I think there's a feeling, um, at least within our partners, that we can also be the solution here, that young people aren't just a marginalised population, but actually just a population that needs to be better utilised in the solutions that we need for the climate crisis. I'll give you an example of one of our partners. Um, so we partnered with an awesome grassroots youth-led organisation in Timor this year um, called Timoriana. And really the way that our Youth Solidarity Fund, which is our main program at the moment at Oak Tree Works, is that we don't even co-design any of these projects. We simply ask them what they think the problem is and we provide them with the resources and the networks to build the solution themselves. Proper, locally led. A <laughs> little bit of locally led there. Um, so we really did want to move past co-design in, in everything that we do to really transfer all of that power to them. And so we asked them what the problem was that they wanted to focus on. And for them in their community, it was water scarcity. And that was directly linked with some of the effects of the climate crisis. And when we asked them what the solution needs to be, they actually found that it was about reviving water canalizing from existing springs to nearby villages. And they had already sort of done some research before we partnered on them on, on what was needed to implement the solution and it involved actually planting 500 trees near a village spring to revitalize these springs and and get their um water quality to increase and so that that was what they did this year they've finalized their project and completed um planting those trees and as a result have improved the water scarcity issue in their community um and you know they were successfully even interviewed on national television as a result of of this um this huge success that they've done and you know these programs don't cost much it's just an it's just a way to give the resources really to young people who have had these really crazy innovative ideas and have led to some really great outcomes Benu, that sounds Great. And I've been aware of this model that Oak Tree has, which is a little bit different. And you guys made this transition a little while ago, but you essentially, you, you captured it just then when you said, what is the problem that they wanted to solve? And, you know, we're all talking about what it means to be locally led. That was a big feature of the Australasian Aid Conference and the ACVID Conference as well last year. But I'm thinking now about you could never have an Australian aid program which was just dependent on what problem do you want to solve. But there is this country strategy process, right, which is about being partner-led. And by partner, we don't just mean those elites who are in government, but we mean whole of society. And so I'm wondering, what do you think that the Australian Development Program, which is coming out later this year, could learn from your model? Is there, is there something in there about, you know, maybe a portion of the program is going to operate in this way? What do you think? I think so. And I think there's precedent for it as well, Jess. When we look at, for example, the US again, USAID just came out this year with a program that is pretty much just replicating what we're doing. It's providing micro grants to grassroots youth organisations that aren't necessarily accredited or registered within their um, communities, but really just have these great ideas and they don't need much 
funds. They just need someone to believe in them with that micro grant. Um, and so USAID is already doing this. And we know that Australia does want to work more closely with America on um, our development outcomes. So perhaps this is actually a really key area that we could collaborate with the US on and actually expand that program. And, um, you know, a lot of the pushback I sometimes get from stakeholders in government about a program like this is the risk involved with capturing some of this, um, these funds and funneling them into an organisation that ne isn't necessarily set up with the processes um, that we are used to experiencing with local partners. But I think if if the US have found a way to do this um, and manage those risks, then there is a really clear imperative that we must follow in that in that way. And I really think that the risk of not doing so is something that we should think about instead. Mm. I think you've touched on something really unique and special about Oak Tree there, Thanu, which is that this proof of concept that Oak Tree can achieve can then be scaled and it can be a replica for other organisations to model themselves on. And I know there have been a few things like that over the years where Oak Tree has piloted it because you probably have a higher capacity for risk and innovation than a lot of others in the sector do, right? And then I'm not saying USAID took your idea um, <laughs> but it's it's interesting to think about how that proof of concept in the way you work with young people can then sort of be established and tested by oak tree and then put into practice by others yeah absolutely and we found this year that the outcomes coming out of these programs are phenomenal compared to the traditional development programs compared to the scale that we used to operate on um, and yeah I really think that the risk here is is not trying something like this yeah, we're hearing it from across the ACVID membership as well, all 130 organisations. When we do those consultations with our membership, everyone says locally led is the number one push. And it's not just about helping them be delivery partners. Like the big message coming through is making sure that that power and agency and decision making, which is something Oak Tree has been really good at leading on, what is the problem you're trying to solve? You dedicate, you, you name the priority and we'll go from there. It seems like a really simple concept and in a way it has been for Oak Tree because we are such a nimble organisation. We don't have, you know, country offices or anything like that that I do know that a lot of larger INGOs um, do have to factor into when thinking about locally led development. But, I mean, for us, we really just want to focus in on that concept of of just being that support, letting the process be led by our partners over there. And I think that very simple concept can be expanded um, to, to fit every organisation, no matter what size. That's great value for money too, for the outcomes. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if there's a, a top line message you want to get to the government or to DFAT, one big takeaway that you want them to remember. What do you want it to look like in 10 years, Thanu? <laughs> Look, in 10 years, I really hope that we have established structures to include young people in these conversations. That is the first step. Um, I think there needs to be a youth advisory group in some sense um, working across the Asia Pacific to really capture those perspectives. Um, and, you know, I would be amiss to not say that I think youth should be mainstreamed in all of our programs and that, you know, we need to work on the demographic dividend that we're seeing here with the youth bulge. Um, and that's not expected to, to change anytime soon. So in 10 years time, those are the two things I'd really like to see young people being included in conversations and youth being mainstreamed across all our development programs. Mm, powerful message. 
Well, thank you so much, Thanu. Uh, I look forward to having a face-to-face pizza with you soon. Um, but we, we really appreciate your time on the program. We've been Rachel Mason-Nunn and Jessica McKenzie on the Reimagining Development Policy podcast. Please tune in again for more hearty conversations about how we can rework and rewire international development to meet our future needs. Thanks again and bye for now.